Welcome to the Biner Family Speaker Series, a podcast dedicated to high-level research on contemporary anti-Semitism by fostering productive and collegial discussion of the most pertinent issues before us. Hosted by the Indiana University Institute for the Study of Contemporary Anti-Semitism. For more information about this speaker series, ISCA News, or videos of past webinars, please visit our website at isca.indiana.edu. And now to present our speaker, Dr. Alvin H. Rosenfeld. Special thanks to you, Jared, for joining us. Welcome to everyone for what's bound to be an especially interesting webinar session, um, which is going to focus on anti-Semitism within American colleges and universities. And in particular, uh, at some point, there will be attention paid to Jewish studies in this role as well. The Jewish studies program at Indiana University, by the way, is one of the oldest in the country. We're now in our 50th year. It's celebration time. Um, and by and large, this university has been hospitable to Jewish students, faculty, and staff over many years. However, we're no more immune to some of the bad developments taking place on campuses than our uh, other universities. Um, no more about that from my point right now, but it is something that we need to attend to. Our speaker today is especially well-suited to address these issues. Um, professor Tani is a professor of history uh, with a specialty on Russian history and Jewish history at the University of North Carolina in Wilmington. I'm proud to say that Indiana University Press published a book of his uh, called City of Rogues and Schnorrers about Odessa, a city much in the news, thanks to Mr. Putin, uh, in recent years. He's been writing a lot on comedy and humor in Jewish life and Jewish writings, and uh, tells me that he's writing a book tentatively called The Babylonian Seinfeld. Wow. That's going to be one to look for, uh, for sure. For our purposes, and uh, credit to him, uh, not too long ago, he saw the need to uh, explicitly address anti-Zionism uh, within the academy, particularly as it shows up at times within Jewish studies programs, and uh, he established the Jewish Studies Zionist Network. I'm a proud member of that organization and recommend it to all of you tuning in if you're in the field. And we'll learn more about that and related matters uh, right now. Ta Jared, it's my pleasure to hand over to you. Thank you very much for that uh, lovely uh, introduction, Dr. Rosenfeld. Uh, it is indeed a pleasure to be here. Uh, just some news on the Babylonian Seinfeld front. I was just offered a contract a few days ago. I haven't signed it yet, but it will be signed hopefully by the end of the weekend. So I'm particularly thrilled uh, about that. Um, I'm also very thrilled to be here today 
Um, I have been a big fan um, of the Institute for quite some time, having recognized nearly a decade ago the continuing threat anti-Semitism poses in the United States and other supposedly safe havens for the Jews. And I'd like to thank you, Dr. Rosenfeld, uh, in particular, uh, whose scholarship I have used in my own courses and in my own work for having invited me. Now, my talk today focuses on the tolerance of and complicity in left-wing anti-Semitism that has grown exponentially within the field of Jewish studies in recent years. Much of my talk will be in the form of a personal reflection because I have held an endowed chair in Jewish studies for the past 13 years, and my encounter with anti-Semitism within Jewish studies, the wider field, not my university, is a product of my involvement in this academic field. Now, my talk, however, will also contain some analysis of left-wing anti-Semitism in general, geared for a public audience, which is more often than not disguised as anti-Zionism. I'm including this material because you need to understand why anti-Zionism is anti-Semitism more often than not, in order to understand why Jewish studies complicity is horrifying and ultimately poses a threat to the security and future of American Jewry. And I'm not exaggerating here. So let us begin. August 2017, Charlottesville, the Unite the Right rally, an outpouring of anger and grief from Jewish Studies faculty. October 2018, Tree of Life massacre, an outpouring of anger and grief from Jewish Studies faculty. May 2021, threats and violence in the diaspora against Jews because of what Israel was allegedly doing. The response? A collective letter from over 200 self-professed Jewish Studies experts blaming Israel for all that had transpired. When this happened, I published an op-ed in the Times of Israel titled Jewish Studies, You Have Failed. And I continue to stand by that statement today. And I would like to elaborate on this failure because it raises an important question. To what extent are Jewish studies professors propagating anti-Israel narratives for political purposes in their classroom, since they are so vocal in doing so in public? Large segments of the Jewish public have come to believe that this is now a widespread phenomenon. And I have heard from many, many parents of Jewish students uh, who tell their children when they go off to college not to take Jewish studies courses for this very reason. Nevertheless, I am not completely convinced that this is true. Why? Well, because aside from a handful of very notorious exceptions in Jewish studies, the anti-Zionist indoctrination is largely coming from outside of the field of Jewish studies. It is coming from faculty in ethnic studies, Middle Eastern studies, disability studies, women and gender studies, communications, and other such programs. Programs that have all become popular and trendy in recent years because they are grounded in identity politics and because of their public commitment to bring social justice into the classroom at the expense of critical inquiry. And all this has been well documented. No, Jewish studies faculty have failed for a different yet related reason. They have failed because they have not pushed back against this perversion of education. Whenever events in the Israeli-Palestinian conflict heat up and the academy feels it necessary to speak out against Israel, Jewish studies either remain silent or publicly sides with the anti-Zionists, much as they did in May 2021, when they issued a statement unilaterally condemning Israel, ignoring Hamas terrorism, and offering nothing but a rather anodyne rejection of, and they quote, all expressions of anti-Zionism and Islamophobia. But when you insist on denouncing Islamophobia in the same breath that you condemn anti-Semitism, at a time when Hamas apologists are literally attacking Jews in the streets of America, yet nobody was attacking Muslims at that time, then you are in fact saying all lives matter to the Jews. You are siding with the anti-Semite. And as an insider who saw earlier drafts of this statement, I know with certainty that the condemnation of anti-Semitism was an 11th hour insertion, 
because its authors had received pushback on social media, including from me. So why is Jewish studies doing this? Why are they publicly siding with militant anti-Zionists in academia? Before I answer this, we need to unpack the dominant anti-Zionist tropes being propagated in academic publications and in the classroom, so you can better understand how this is anti-Semitism disguised as scholarship and education. Palestine is a queer issue. Palestine is a disability issue. Palestine is a climate justice issue. From Standing Rock to Palestine, our lands are not for sale. These are just some of the slogans we frequently hear that are popular among scholar activists working against Israel. Each one of these slogans links peoples, territories, and phenomena that have absolutely nothing to do with each other. For this reason alone, they should be rejected entirely. Yet they are not. Intersectionality, as interpreted on campus today, irrespective of the term's original meaning, claims that all oppressions are linked. Unless everyone is free, nobody is free. You can't be against one oppression without being against them all. For this to have relevance to Israel-Palestine, Israel and its supporters must be centered as the universal oppressors. Scholar activists have achieved this through ideologically driven frameworks that simply do not hold up under scrutiny. But among the radical left, facts do not matter. Feelings are what count. For the Nazis, and I know it's always you know, dangerous to make analogies with the Nazis, but it works here. For the Nazis, it was not enough that the Jews were an evil ethno-national community and a subhuman degenerate race. The Jews had to be powerful, global, conspiratorial, and the beneficiaries of an ongoing apocalyptic transnational war. Similarly, for the anti-Zionist left, Israel and its supporters must be global, conspiratorial, and the chief beneficiaries of the so-called, quote, global systems of oppression against which social justice scholar activists fight. It is no accident that Israel, the Jewish state, is the only foreign country routinely vilified in the platforms and statements issued by domestic social justice movements. And in academia, anti-Semitic tropes are often anchored in scholarship that claims to reveal how Zionism afflicts the world and is even connected to inequity and suffering in America itself. Now, let me expand a bit on how the left frames this with some examples. First, Zionism is an assault against indigenous peoples, a form of white racism against people of color and an instance of European imperialism. According to this logic, Israel was constructed through the same historical processes that led to the colonization of the Americas, the genocide of Native Americans, and the enslavement of Africans. Palestinians are, quote, indigenous people of color, and their liberation is connected directly to justice for Native Americans, Black Americans, and anyone else who is not white. Second, Jews are the beneficiaries of structural racism in America, and they mask this by claiming to be the victims of oppression. According to this logic, Jews enjoyed tremendous social mobility in the U.S. for an immigrant community because they were granted legal status as white people and not subjected to the same victimhood they had experienced elsewhere. Obviously, there is some truth to this. But it goes on. Jews succeeded only because of their complicity in white supremacy, and that is completely not true. When Jews bring up the Holocaust and centuries of discrimination in Europe and the Middle East, they are told it has zero relevance in America since Jews have suffered virtually no oppression here. Again, that is not true. Jews are white people, and white people cannot be victims. At the extreme end, it has even been claimed that the Holocaust constituted, quote, white on white crime and has nothing to do with race. And Whoopi Goldberg was not the first person to have said that. Third, Palestine is a queer issue, and Israel is guilty of perpetuating homophobia. According to this logic, Israel is what we call pinkwashing, 
using its so-called gay liberation practices to show itself to be a progressive state. But in reality, they're doing this to cover their oppression of the Palestinians. At the extreme end, it has even been argued that gay Palestinians suffer for being gay because of Israeli occupation, not because Hamas and the Palestinian Authority persecute gay people with alacrity. Fourth, Palestine is a disability issue. The field of disability studies has done a great deal of work here, and I would argue that this is as creative as it gets. Israel deliberately maims Palestinians, shoots them so they are physically disabled, tampers with their water supply and their food supply so their growth is stunted, withholds medication, and experiments on Palestinian bodies, even harvesting their organs. Fifth, Palestine is a climate justice issue because Israelis poison the Palestinian landscape to render it uninhabitable. According to this narrative, Israel has deliberately made Gaza and into environmental wasteland in multiple ways. It has damaged its arable land through dangerous herbicides, indiscriminately dropped bombs to ruin the soil, and polluted the water through the injection of sewage. But it is a universal issue, and this is very important, because, and I quote from one of these statements, the catastrophic climate justice is fueled by global inequality and engineered by complicit governments and corporations, and warfare a pillar of Israel's economy, is one of the world's most polluting industries. In other words, we are living in a climate emergency from America to China, and Israel's occupation of Palestine is leading the way in decimating our planet. Now, these five claims, and there are more, come together that Zionism is anti-native, imperialist, white supremacist, Islamophobic, homophobic, and ableist. Intersectionalist social justice cannot be achieved at the global level, until those guilty of impeding social justice, that is to say Israel and its supporters abroad, are quashed. To quote a 2020 tweet from the notorious ex-academic now bus driver Stephen Salida, and I quote, if you're serious about a safe, more livable world, then ending Zionism needs to be part of the calculation. So I raise the question, does this constitute anti-Semitism? I say unequivocally that it does. Israel isn't merely being held to a double standard which is problematic enough, but it's not that Israel is being merely held to a double standard as some apologists for anti-Zionism maintain. These apologists often insist that Israel is disproportionately targeted because Israel receives so much aid from America and is never sanctioned for its alleged crimes. I invite people to look at the numerous UN resolutions against Israel that have been passed over the years. But I hope you see that the above examples demonstrate that it's not just about a double standard. It's about Zionism and Israel being centered as key players in sustaining and even instigating these so-called global systems of oppression. But what makes this all so much worse is that the anti-Zionist left has underpinned its intersectionalist model with anti-Jewish stereotypes that really should be obvious to anyone with even a rudimentary knowledge of Jewish history. Yes, it's also about centuries-old anti-Semitic stereotypes lurking beneath this social justice rhetoric. This isn't hatred for an ideology and a government. It is a form of hatred for a particular ethno-religious community that's deeply embedded in the history of Western civilization. So let me give you some examples. The stereotype of Jewish disloyalty, dual loyalty, and Jewish money. Representative Ilhan Omar is, perhaps more than anyone else, a key player here. Her infamous All About the Benjamins tweet, which was retweeted with joy by David Duke, and many of her subsequent tweets about, quote, pledging allegiance to a foreign government, brought the specter of Jewish disloyalty and influence through Zionist finances into public discourse. Dual loyalty driven by greed is the most pervasive anti-Semitic trope of modernity. It has resonated across the political spectrum from the French Revolution to the present. 
ever since Johann Fichte called the Jews a state within a state in 1793. Second, there was a global Jewish conspiracy to profile and murder Black Americans. In 2017, Jewish Voice for Peace launched their so-called Deadly Exchange campaign. This campaign argued that Israel and Zionist organizations abroad are engaged in a covert program to have American police forces trained by the IDF. Now, there is such a training program. It does exist. But why is Israel training them? Well, according to JVP and its supporters, in order to better racially profile and murder people of color, thereby ensuring that white supremacists remain in power. As an apartheid state, after all, Israel is the leading expert in racial profiling. Um, I'm no expert on American history, but Israel's only existed since 1948, and I'm pretty sure racial profiling in one form or another goes back about three centuries um, in the North American continent. Now, the deadly exchange has been thoroughly debunked by Professor Miriam Elman and others, and I invite you to read their, their writings on the topic. But what's most important to note here is that this accusation is identical to the so-called white genocide charge mirroring the Jews will not replace us neo-Nazi slogan made infamous at Charlottesville's Unite the Right rally in 2017. The only difference is that the beneficiaries and victims are inverted. For neo-Nazis, people of color benefit and white people suffer. For the anti-Zionist left, it is white supremacists who benefit and people of color who suffer. But what is consistent is the identity of the intermediary. It is the Jew who was engaged in an international plot to socially engineer the American population in order to assert power covertly from the shadows. The deadly exchange is a reconfiguring of the protocols of the elders of Zion for a 21st century woke audience. Next on my list, we have body snatching, baby killing, and organ harvesting. In the early 2000s, Israel was falsely accused of systematically harvesting organs from snatched Palestinian babies. Even though this conspiracy theory was debunked, such charges remain rampant in leftist circles. Denunciations of Zionist baby killers were ubiquitous during the May 2021 Israeli Gaza war. Israelis were graphically painted as monstrous killers driven by an insatiable need for Palestinian blood. And indeed, there were plenty of political cartoons going back decades that were published in the um, Arab and Middle Eastern media depicting Israelis as such. Now, but what's important here is that such accusations are a reconfiguration of the blood libel, the charge of Jewish ritual murder, which first surfaced in the 12th century when medieval European Jews were accused of kidnapping and killing young Christian boys. It was endorsed throughout the centuries by governments, clergy, and even university professors, such as the infamous Johann Andreas Eisenmenger of the University of Heidelberg in his book Judaism Unmasked, published in 1700. Israeli organ harvesting and baby killing demonstrates that the blood libel is alive and well today, refashioned through social justice-friendly discourse. Academics, people with doctorates from prestigious institutions, propagate these tropes in the classroom and in their scholarship, and they usually do so without ever using the word Jew, without ever explicitly advocating for violence against Jews, and without using the language of biological race utilized by the Nazis. Instead, they deploy seemingly innocuous phrases like dismantling Zionist oppression, liberating Palestine from the river to the sea, and decolonizing the apartheid state. But the meaning is the same. There is no place for a Jewish nation in the comedy of nation. It needs to be replaced by Palestine. And only when Palestine is freed from Jewish supremacy from the river to the sea will everyone else in the world be free. And they are bringing it into the classroom. I shall quote from one of the many statements issued in 2021 
This one from a network called Scholars for Palestinian Freedom. In it, they write, and I quote directly, it is no longer acceptable to conduct research in Palestine or on Palestinians without a clear component, uh, a clear component of political commitment. In the classroom and on campus, and I stress that they use the word classroom here, we commit to pressuring our academic institutions and organizations to respect the Palestinian call for boycott, divestment, and sanctions of Israel. We commit to supporting student activism on campus. We commit to extending the above approach to any and all indigenous scholars within the university and any indigenous communities within the vicinity. We commit to centering indigenous analyses in teaching and drawing links to intersectional oppression and transnational liberation movements. Note the connection being made between Palestinians and indigenous Americans. Now, if Palestine is centered as the universal victim of colonial oppression in such a manner, then Israel is by definition demonized as the universal oppressor. If teachers indoctrinate their students to view Israeli imperialism as global, then any American Jew who affiliates with their ancestral ethno-national homeland is complicit in thwarting social justice, not only over there, but everywhere. Students will walk out of such classes distrusting their Jewish neighbors. Palestinian activists will hold American Jewry responsible for what they call Israeli apartheid and settler colonialism. And this is precisely what happened in May 2021, when fighting broke out between Israel and Hamas. Several dozen, perhaps as many as 100 academic departments, disciplines and associations issued statements placing all blame with Israel. The statement from which I have quoted, which is indeed one of the worst, first published in May 2021 under the title Palestine and Praxis, I invite you to Google it and check out their website, it is still up, has as of today, I checked in again a few days ago, has as of today garnered over 5,000 signatures from college educators. Let me repeat that. 5,000 college educators have agreed to bring Palestinian activism and a commitment to dismantle the Zionist colonial state into their classrooms, even if their courses have nothing to do with Palestine. And indeed, I recognize the names of quite a few historians on that list, and I know that what they teach at their universities has nothing to do with Israel-Palestine. Importing those 5,000 names into an Excel sheet, because I wanted to count how many there were, actually crashed my computer. So, this brings me back to the question, where is Jewish studies in all this? To answer this question, I'm going to switch gears and tell you the story of how I became aware of the corruption of Jewish studies and got sucked into the world of Zionist activism, irreparably changing my academic trajectory. Now, when I embarked upon my academic career in Jewish studies more than 20 years ago, I never expected to find myself on the front lines of defending Jewish students and scholars within the Academy for Anti-Semitism. I had no intention of, of doing any of that. I actually feel a bit stupid for not having foreseen this. I did my PhD at Berkeley, which, as everyone should know, led the way in making anti-Zionist discourse and bullying fashionable and respectable on college campuses across the country. But at that time, all that was background noise to me. I hung out with the Russian historians in those days, and they had little interest in any of this stuff. They were more concerned with doing what scholars are supposed to do, producing scholarship that is not compromised by activism or predetermined by an ideological agenda. I could have easily ended up being hired for a Russian history position, but because of the state of the academic job market in 2008, I was hired for Jewish history, and indeed I am very grateful to have found a job. I am equally trained in both fields, but I spent my time in grad school among those who studied the former Soviet Union. Now, I mention this only because I need to underscore that I entered Jewish studies without having any sort of act Zionist activist agenda. Sure, I have always been a Zionist, and I have taught a course on Zionism in Israel every other year since 2009. 
But I am very fortunate to teach at a university where anti-Zionist activism is not an issue. My students don't believe that Palestinian freedom is inextricably linked to Black Lives Matter, climate change, and LGBT rights. They would be perplexed if someone suggested that there was a relationship between any of these things. My colleagues in my history department at UNCW are wonderful, and as far as I know, they don't waste their time on this stuff. I am also the faculty advisor for my campus Hillel, and my students, at least to my knowledge, have not encountered anti-Semitism or endured altercations with pro-Palestinian activists. There is thankfully, at least for now, no Students for Justice in Palestine on my campus. I have had a total of one hostile encounter with a colleague on my campus relating to Zionism and Jews, a professor from Communications and Disability Studies who had absorbed and repeated all the anti-Semitic tropes that have found their way into her corner of the humanities through intersectionality and critical race theory. Just one encounter. I turned it into a widely circulated op-ed published in the Jewish Journal and then blocked her on social media. And although she later told me she had considered legal action against me for, quote, ruining her professional reputation, even though I never mentioned her name in the article, nothing further came of it. Sadly, we had previously been friends. We even lived on the same street at one point. So then how did I get drawn into this universe of Zionist activism if I never set out to do so? The answer is as simple as it is tragic. It is the climate within the wider national and international Jewish studies community. Jewish studies, as an academic field, has become a hotbed of anti-Zionist activity in a way that it wasn't a decade ago. Now, of course, it's been heading in that direction for quite some time, especially at a school like Berkeley. But it only exposed itself in full force during the Israel-Gaza conflict of 2021, when several hundred Jewish studies professors authored a statement blaming Israel entirely for the carnage. The number of Jewish studies faculty who went along with the statement shocked me. I had hitherto been convinced that only a small minority of Jewish studies faculty were pushing an anti-Zionist agenda, whereas the vast majority merely remained silent. They were scholars who simply did not want to get involved, whatever their feelings toward Israel may be. But when several hundred people signed the statement, which insisted that Israel, and I quote, was shaped by settler colonialist paradigms, which have led to unjust, enduring, and unsustainable systems of Jewish supremacy, and I underscore the phrase Jewish supremacy, ethno-national segregation, discrimination, and violence against Palestinians. I then realized that what we had was not a case of silent complicity, but of active engagement, or rather active appeasement of the wider anti-Zionist academic left. Faculty in gender studies, ethnic studies, Middle Eastern studies, and the various other disciplines who had all issued their own statements vilifying Israel in the days leading up to the statement from Jewish studies. It's not just that Jewish studies issued a statement, it's that everyone else had ganged up on the Jews in the leading, weeks leading up to this one. Now again, what surprised me was the sheer number of signatories, not the content of the document, which at best can be described as an anti-Zionist screed couched in politically charged academic jargon, and at worst can be described as something far more malicious. No, I was not surprised by the statement itself because it had already been four years since I had had my first of several confrontations with other Jewish studies scholars, not merely over Israel, but over their utter refusal to acknowledge the anti-Semitism of the left that was growing exponentially in the early days of the Trump era. In early 2017, I was invited to join a Facebook group called the Jewish Studies Activist Network whose stated purpose was to fight fascism in America. Now, though, I was very skeptical of the entire Trump is a fascist mantra, then making its rounds, I nevertheless recognized the burgeoning threat of the right. So I joined the group. How could opposing fascism be a bad thing? What's wrong with condemning the inhumane treatment of immigrants at the border and the hounding of anyone suspected of being anything other than a true American?
I was, after all, a Canadian here on a green card. I'm now a citizen. But at the time, I was a Canadian here on a green card. So joining such a group was almost a no-brainer. But it soon became clear that the group, which had hundreds of members, all Jewish studies faculty, many prominent ones whose scholarship we rely on to teach our classes, had a different agenda that was never explicitly stated, at least not at first. Their agenda was anti-Zionist, perhaps out of conviction, perhaps out of a desire to demonstrate to the wider America, to the wider American left, that Jewish studies was on the side of anti-imperialism and anti-racism and willing to speak out against what they called Zionist apartheid, even if it meant looking the other way in the face of anti-Semitism emanating from the left. Why? Well, I concur with what the sociologist Dr. David Hirsch has argued, uh, that signing off on anti-Zionism is the price of admission into leftist academic circles. If Jewish studies scholars insist that anti-Semitic tropes propagated by Ilhan Omar, Rashida Tlaib, or academics like Mark Lamont Hill, and whomever else, are not actually anti-Semitic, then there's nothing to argue, and Jewish studies can thus be granted entry into the academic social justice club, which is what they want more than anything. JSAN's agenda became abundantly clear over the next few years, based on the conversations that transpired within the group and in the statements they ultimately issued. They spoke out against the appointment of Ken Marcus to the Department of Education. They condemned David Friedman as a selected ambassador to Israel because he was allegedly a racist. They rejected Trump's executive order against anti-Semitism, which I want to make clear has done a lot of good uh, since he passed it. And of course, they opposed the transfer of the American embassy to Jerusalem. Did they ever speak out on anti-Semitism? Occasionally, but only if it emanated from the political right, i.e. from white supremacists. But in the summer of 2017, all this lay in the future, and I naively assumed that the Jewish Studies Activist Network would be willing to take a stand against anti-Semitism of the left if it was abundantly clear that innocent American Jews were bearing the consequences of it. I had a handful of incidents before I was excommunicated through a rather cold and impersonal text message. Of course, I never thought that JSAN would be Israel advocates. I knew better. But the very idea that the loudest collective voice in Jewish studies would become tolerant and even complicit in left-wing anti-Semitism was beyond the limits of my imagination at the time. Now, many of you might remember that in the summer of 2017, there were several altercations involving the bullying of LGBT Jews. Most notorious of all was the ejection of a contingent of LGBT Jews from the Chicago Dyke March for having had the chutzpah to display a rainbow flag with a white star of David, which I need to underscore is not an Israeli flag. The flag allegedly represented apartheid and imperialism, and many involved with the march found it, quote, triggering. Of course, Palestinian national flags were more than welcome, irrespective of how Jews might feel about them. But earlier in the summer, there was a far more troubling incident at an Israeli day parade in New York, which the anti-Zionist organization, Jewish Voice for Peace, decided to disrupt. As shrewd militants out for blood and maximum payout, they went after the most vulnerable, a contingent of gay Jews. Many of those targeted were in fact orthodox gay Jews. Some of them had just come out or were in the process of coming out of the closet. Many were out in public as proud gay Jews for the very first time in their lives after having grown up in a homophobic religious world. It should have been one of the greatest moments of their lives, being Jewish and queer in public. But JVP sent in their thugs who proceeded to harass, taunt, and bully them. They deliberately chose them because they were gay and perhaps orthodox. This made them especially vulnerable. And anyone who was fighting against all forms of bigotry, as Jewish Voice for Peace claims to do, should have been supporting these people. 
But of course, uh, these uh, gay Jews were also Zionists. And according to the twisted logic of JVP and like-minded activists, this negated any support they should have received for being Jewish and gay. They were no better than any other Zionist imperialist Palestinian oppressor. Perhaps they were even worse. Because as Jewish supremacists, they were betraying their natural allies in the gay community, queers for the liberation of Palestine. So this made them fair game. When I read about what happened, I decided to raise the issue in the Jewish Studies Activist Network. I naively assumed that they would have an interest in combating behavior that was anti-Semitic and deliberately homophobic against Americans. But nobody cared. Many thought it was no big deal. Some admitted to being members of Jewish Voice or Peace or even being, uh, or at least being staunch supporters. They did not consider this an anti-Semitic incident. It was at worst legitimate anti-Zionist politics that gotten a bit out of hand. Now, like, ma like many others who don't know when it's time to get off social media, and I'm pretty sure I have still not learned this lesson to this day, I persisted in arguing. It was only 2017, and I had yet to understand that the very Jews who wrote petition after petition condemning Islamophobia and anti-immigration xenophobia, some of which I actually signed in 2017, had zero interest in defending LGBT Jews if their assailants were anti-Zionist crusaders. Because had they defended them, they would have been branded as complicit in Zionism and faced recrimination in progressive circles, which is something academics can't afford. It is a sin to be on the side of Israeli apartheid in academia. Now, perhaps the most egregious incident I witnessed in the Jewish Studies Activist Network was the fallout surrounding John Cheney Lippold, the University of Michigan professor who refused to write a letter of reference for a student wanting to study abroad in Israel. When the student requested the letter in September 2018, Cheney Lippold replied via email. Not exactly the brightest move on his part, and I only wish anti-Zionists in general um, were so not smart. He replied via email that he and his colleagues in Michigan were engaged in a quiet informal boycott of Israel and therefore he was unable to write a letter. However, he'd be more than happy to write the student a letter of reference to study anywhere else, but Israel was off the table. Fortunately, Cheney Lippold faced severe reprimand from his administration with tangible consequences, including the loss of a forthcoming merit raise and a sabbatical. Now, sure enough, the incident, while it was unfolding, sparked debate on the JSAN Facebook page. One would like to think that Jewish studies scholars would have sided with the student, and if some sort of statement were to be produced, they would have drafted one on behalf of the poor student who had gone to a professor they trusted only to face discrimination. But that's not what happened. Quite the opposite. A number of Jewish study scholar activists were pushing to draft a petition defending Cheney Lippold's right to insert his personal anti-Israel agenda into his relationship with his students. Of course, they didn't phrase it in such terms. Let me repeat that. Jewish study scholars, deliberately misusing the concept of academic freedom, which is the way they phrased it, wanted to voice support for a professor who had harmed their students' right to pursue an education in a recognized independent state, simply because it was the Zionist state. Now, a statement was ultimately drafted and signed by dozens of Jewish study scholars, but for one reason or another, I don't think it was ever made public. I do have a copy of it, though, fortunately, and both the discussion and the statement made it abundantly clear where many of the vocally militant Jewish study scholars stood on the issue. Now, I was eventually thrown out of the network after I brought up another incident involving anti-Semitism from the left. The specifics of the incident are immaterial, because when I brought it up, politely and respectfully, Nobody chose to respond respectfully. Instead, they started ridiculing and smearing me. They called me a racist Islamophobe. 
they started grabbing and posting my tweets and my profile picture from my wall and insulting my clothing. Yes, they were insulting my clothing. These are people with PhDs in Jewish studies. Some of the comments were so defamatory that I posted them on my own Facebook wall. It was then that I was ejected from the network because I had violated their so-called terms of membership by posting screenshots from this secretive private group, even though I had taken steps to deliberately blot out the name of the group to hide their identity. Not one person in Jewish studies came to my defense, not a single one. I even counted some of the members of the JSAN coordinating committee to be my friends. They owed me support not because of the position I took, but because of the way I was treated by the people who attacked me. I no longer count these people as my friends or my colleagues. Now, I realize this hardly rises to the level of, quote, cancellation and harassment that so many other academics have experienced in recent years. But the point is that it placed me on the path of becoming a pariah in Jewish studies, or at least among segments of powerful people in Jewish studies, the very ones who are vocal and militant in their anti-Zionist politics. In fact, over the past two years, it has come to my attention that a very senior scholar in Jewish studies has been taking steps to cancel me. I know that they contacted um, one publisher and, quote, advised them not to publish me. At the time, I sort of laughed it off because it was one incident and there was no evidence their advice was heeded. But then a friend of mine in Jewish studies informed me a few months later that they had been contacted by the very same senior scholar who, quote, advised my friend to have nothing to do with me. Now, I have put the word advised in scare quotes because we all know that when a senior scholar who wields an undeserved amount of power in a profession where power and prestige shape and break careers, that advising someone is not a piece of sagely advice. It is advice in the same way Robert Duval proffered advice on behalf of Marlon Brando in The Godfather. Few outside of academia understand the extent to which our edifice is built upon hierarchical conformity. The public clings to the timeless myth that we are an egalitarian marketplace of ideas. Has this senior scholar contacted anyone else? I have no idea, but twice suggests the pattern, and I'd be surprised if there haven't been more instances. What had I done to deserve ostracism in my chosen academic field? I had chosen to speak out against anti-Zionism because it all too often bleeds into anti-Semitism. It jeopardizes the, the security and vilifies the identity of American Jews, especially on college campuses. And I have heard from these American Jews who are afraid to express their identity on campus as Zionists because they fear ostracism and nobody in Jewish studies is coming to their defense publicly. And I have called out Jewish studies as a field for either remaining silent or for going again, for going along with the progressive line in academia, even when all evidence clearly points to anti-Semitism. Now, I haven't told you my story because I want your sympathy. But if this were an in-person talk, I would expect many of you to buy me drinks at the bar afterwards. And if you do want to send me a bottle of whiskey, I will be happy to send you my address after the talk. No, I am sharing you this uh, with this with you today, so you can understand that there is a problem within Jewish studies itself. The public often looks to Jewish studies professors as the guardians of Jewish knowledge and practices. People turn to us whenever anti-Semitism rears its head, whenever violence breaks out in the Middle East, whenever there is a political dispute that intersects with Jewish issues. This is why in statement after statement, these self-professed experts begin their documents with the words, quote, as scholars of Jewish studies, we insist that dot, dot, dot. They abuse their expertise, their training, their academic credentials for political ends. And unfortunately, one of their political ends is to be welcomed into the wider progressive movement that has inundated college campuses for whom anti-Zionism is the ticket of admission. As my ostracism was unfolding, 
I became increasingly involved with the Academic Engagement Network, currently headed by Dr. Miriam Elman. The work of the AEN has amply demonstrated that anti-Zionist activism on college campuses engenders an anti-Semitic climate, leaving Jewish students, staff, and faculty afraid to express their, Jewish, their Jewishness in public. This has been meticulously documented by them, and I invite everyone to turn to their publications if they want to see evidence. Now, unfortunately, few who are active in AEN are from within Jewish studies itself. Most faculty in its ranks are professors in a myriad of disciplines, ranging from STEM to the humanities, and they are very concerned about anti-Zionism on campus. And as I pointed out when I presented a portion of this talk last summer at the AEN National Conference, few of those who were sitting in the room teach and research Jewish subjects. Now, to be sure, there are some professors who have spoken out against anti-Zionism with secondary affiliations with Jewish studies, though it is not their primary home. One colleague, a law professor connected to his university's Jewish studies program, was so outraged by the events of May 2021 and the response that he received from his university's Jewish studies program, which sided with the anti-Zionists and advised him to choose his battles more carefully. He was so outraged that he decided to disaffiliate himself from Jewish studies entirely. And he concluded, well, I'm a law professor and I can go forth and do meaningful scholarship in a less toxic and hostile environment. Now, even though I'm a historian and I am housed in my university's history department, I do not really have that luxury. I hold an endowed chair in Jewish studies. I teach all the Jewish history courses on my campus. I do a great deal of communal outreach. As the lone full-time Jewish studies professor, this is my mandate. I find it very rewarding. But such a position, should I wish to continue researching and publishing, attending Jewish studies conferences, bringing fellow colleagues to my campus to speak on Jewish topics, requires me to be part of the larger national Jewish studies community of scholars. But I no longer feel as if I am part of this community. For having spoken out on behalf of Zionism, Israel, and the right of Jews on campus to express their identity without fear of ostracism, I have become persona non grata. And I will add that I do have written evidence in the form of a tweet that the author quickly deleted, that there is a blacklist against me in Jewish studies. Now, when I told my story at the AEN conference in May 2022, I ended on this rather pessimistic note. But over the following month, I concluded that it was time to push back far more forcefully. I knew that there had to be other Jewish studies scholars who had no interest in following the bullies propagating the anti-Zionist party line. So I launched an association last June called the Jewish Studies Zionist Network. Yes, I deliberately chose the name Jewish Studies Zionist Network because of the name used by that other network, the Jewish Studies Activist Network. I will quote some excerpts from our mission statement, and I will be happy to show the website off during our Q&A. Quote, the Jewish Studies Zionist Network is composed of scholars and educators in Jewish studies who affirm that Zionism is a legitimate movement for the national self-determination of the Jewish people in their ancestral homeland. As experts in Jewish studies with a commitment to the peace and welfare of all communities in Israel, the world's sole Jewish state, we reject characterizations of Zionism in Israel that seek to discredit their legitimacy and that judge them according to standards not applied to any other nation. Our mission is the following, to reaffirm as scholars and educators intimately familiar with the history of the Jewish people and Zionism to our colleagues, our students, and the wider community, the legitimacy of Zionism as the historical movement of Jewish self-determination and of the state of Israel as a Jewish state in the community of nations. Second, to thwart efforts to demonize Zionism in Israel via such charges as apartheid, 
a racist endeavor, genocide, and Jewish supremacy, which are all driven by ideological rather than scholarly considerations. To foster scholarship in our respective disciplines that gives voice to multiple approaches and perspectives, contributing to better intellectual and educational outcomes. We may be activists, but we are scholars first. And finally, to ensure that a safe space exists on college campuses for Jewish students and faculty to express their identities as Jewish Zionists in public, just as this safe space is provided to members of other minority communities. There is a double standard against Jews here. Now, I am pleased to report that as of now, over 180 Jewish study scholars have signed our mission statement. Clearly, there are others who agree with me that it is time to push back. Our work is just beginning, but we have already issued multiple statements condemning specific incidents of anti-Semitism on college campuses, such as the decision of 15 Berkeley law student clubs to ban Zionist speakers from their groups, essentially implementing a Jewish litmus test. Will our efforts ultimately bear fruit? I think it's too soon to tell. I never expected more than a few dozen academics to sign our mission statement. That 180 scholars and educators, all affiliated with Jewish studies, are willing to speak out gives me hope. At the very least, we are not going down without a fight. Going along with the conformity demanded by woke academia when their abusive expertise exacerbates anti-Semitism is a morally indefensible position. Because one thing has become clear to me over the years. If the accepted experts in Jewish history, politics, religion, and culture won't stand up against the demonization of the Jews. Well, then let me ask you, who exactly will? Thank you.